Welcome to the Jackie Always Unplugged. If you're anything like me, you might be feeling a bit disturbed by all the violence we are seeing in the news lately. And quite frankly, we should be. I know it's rocked me enough to question whether I should do this podcast because this podcast contains more heavy stuff. Today's conversation is about women who leave their homelands to find safety and security in ours. And their lives have anguish and pain, but also beauty and bravery. And when I think about their lives, I understand that they have experienced trauma. And that trauma is going to be passed down to their children. And if that is true, then it is also true that their resiliency and their bravery is also going to be passed down. So yeah, today I want to talk about some hard stuff that women go through. But I don't want us to focus on the suffering I want us to be reminded that in the middle of this, in the middle of it, there is beauty and bravery. And I can't think of anyone else I'd like to have this conversation with than Stephanie Giddens. She and I attended the same seminary, and we've hung out in the same Christian circles over the years. And both of us have had our faith stretched and reordered and reshaped because we have walked alongside marginalized women. Stephanie is the founder and executive director of the Vickery Trading Company, a Dallas-based nonprofit that equips refugee women for long-term success through vocational training, personal development, and fair wages. Welcome to the Jackie Always Unplugged podcast, where we're having off-the-record conversations. I'm Reverend Dr. Jackie Reese, founder and president of the Marcella Project. As a pastor, preacher, and thought leader, I've walked with women of faith for decades and had thousands of conversations about what women encounter solely because they are women. At work, family, their faith, with relationships, sex, the church, their bodies, and Jesus. On this podcast, we're going to be asking hard questions, dealing with real issues, and revisiting scripture with a new lens. These conversations are going to put words to your female experience. They're going to ennoble you as Jesus intended and encourage you to bring your full self to the table. It's here we're going to reshape our view. So I want to welcome you to our podcast, Stephanie. I'm so glad to have you on. Thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to chat. Okay. I want you to tell our listeners about uh, your organization, Vickery Trading Company. Yeah. Tell us what it is. Yeah. It's kind of, it's a big thing um, or a big mission. We're a nonprofit social enterprise that um, our mission officially is to equip refugee women for long-term success through vocational training personal development and fair wages. But what that looks like is we hire refugee women and train them to sew at a professional level. They are paid employees from day one that they come into our organization. So we are working um, to train them on industrial machines and prepare them for the workforce professionally. And we produce, you know, if you go, little side note, if you go on our website now, it looks a little bit like an Old Navy clearance rack. Um, <laughs> because everything is on sale right now because we are dwindling down that inventory and having a massive product shift. So we will be making women's clothing and a different line of accessories coming up. But really, we're focusing in on 
mission-driven styles. Like our women are going into tailoring, so we need to have a button-up blouse in our product line to make sure they are learning collars and cuffs and button plackets. Um, So super intentional about what we make. Um, They make fair wages for their work making those clothes. But then the meat of our program is they're with us for about 21 months, and we do ESL, computer literacy, financial literacy, trauma-informed yoga. We have case management services to help them with all of the other barriers that they face going into employment. And then we help them with job placement services. We're really looking to get them into financial sustainability in self-sufficiency when they graduate from our program and get jobs as seamstresses in the Dallas area. I love it. I've been watching your work for a long time following what you're doing, and it's awesome. And that's one of the reasons I wanted you on is because I want people to hear about it. Um, You and I have some similar uh, things that we have experienced. I have traveled internationally uh, extensively, and it's in that travel I became very aware that it is still dangerous to be a woman or a girl in the world today. I think sometimes as American women, particularly white privileged women, we forget that. Um, But while I've traveled, I've been exposed to cultures where women have no agency, right? There's child brides, marital rape, um, domestic Mm -hmm. violence that actually is celebrated. Like when a man beats his wife, the community praises him for it. Um, I've been with women that didn't have the choice about whether they were going to take birth control or not. They couldn't say no to their husbands wanting sex. Um, And so all of these experiences of kind of having a more global understanding of women has oriented my vocation to ennobling women through scripture-based teaching and training and dialogue. And I just wondered, um, how did you get so passionate about helping, helping marginalized women? Like, where did that come from? Yeah, so back up, I um, had helped launch a ministry to Christian, young Christian professional women here in Dallas. And I, when I went to seminary, I thought, okay, I'm going to be teaching the Bible to Christian women. And a few projects I did with that organization, one was help um, fund women's leadership training for women in Africa and help fund microloans for that. So did a lot of research. I didn't get to go on the ground and do it, unfortunately, but a lot of research and learning about that process. And then we did another project with human trafficking, specifically in Dallas at the time. But that opened my eyes to the marginalization of women globally. And um, at the same time... um, So I started getting interested in that. My husband started getting interested in um, business as missions, you know, call it what you will, but really, can we do good with business globally? And can a a ministry or a humanitarian organization self-fund to some degree through enterprise? And lots of work and study and interviews and meetings and all roads led to Kigali, Rwanda, um, which was a little bit different than young <laughs> professional Texas. women in Dallas. Yes. <laughs> um, and it sure so, is. I've been there. <laughs> <laughs> but we planned to move to Kigali, Rwanda. Brad got a, Brad is my husband. Um, Brad got a job with um, a consulting firm over in Kigali, and we were going to learn the ropes there and eventually start a social enterprise for 
women over there because they are the ones who tend to have the least access to jobs, their own money moving forward. However, research says that a woman is how you build a community. When you build up a woman, you are building up families and communities. And um, 24 hours before we shipped that container overseas, the job fell through and we did not move to Rwanda. Um, while moving over, I remember that being is, a really confusing season for you. Like, it was whoa, very, wait a minute. <laughs> it was everything. Um, sad, hard, confusing. Cause you're yeah. like, God, you have opened so many doors and connection after connection, everything lining up and just wait. And, um, You know, on that, the biggest lesson I think I learned that continues to be foundational to my thinking today is we didn't understand why. And I learned that as humans, we don't necessarily have, we aren't privy to the why. And God doesn't owe us that when he changes direction. We are part of his story. He is not, you know shedding a spotlight on our story to make us big and we get to play a tiny part and he doesn't have to explain himself. And I may not ever know, right. I may not never, ever know the why this side of heaven. Um, so, and the book of Job tells us that, right. The book of Job tells us that. Um, yeah, but it's painful when you think you're going in one direction and you think the Lord has actually put you there and he very well may have, right. And then uh, 180, right. Right hand turn. Yeah, exactly. So I think I'm going to be, and I had, we had two kids at the time. Um, Our middle was, he was in his first year of life as we were preparing to move. So poor baby was getting all of his first year of life (laughs) shots and all of the travel vaccines. So they would just like, he was a little pin cushion, his fat little legs. Um, And that all fell through. I thought I was going to be raising my kids in a third world country and was very excited about that. There's some heart change and worldview change that you necessarily must go through to mm-hmm. live in and raise children in a third world developing country that you don't get to change back, even if you don't move. That's and right. so all of a sudden I have this, well, almost, I hadn't quite made it there yet, but as close as I could get to third world mind, you know, third world mindset. And I'm stuck back in one of the most materialistic cities in the United States or in the world for that matter and feeling like a square peg in a round hole all the time and I didn't really want to be here I wanted Mm. to be overseas and I wanted to do that thing that we felt God had called us to that I had become passionate about you know empowering marginalized women and um, so our solution to the whole problem was to um, have a third child (laughs) does that make sense (laughs) I was going to say, that's not a good solution. Those of you listening out there, not good advice. Not a, not a good solution, although he is our little ray of sunshine and continues to be. So <laughs> we don't know what we would do without him, but whoo, number three is a lot. Um, I got really sick with him. Um, and anyway, so the dust settled on the move, the emotional pain, the financial chaos, it went on for years and years. Um, I don't know if we can ever calculate that. Um, And the dust settled and I realized very clearly, it was like that still small voice of God, like, 
I still want to empower women. I am still passionate about this thing. And it, I cannot handle the fact that there are women in this world who, who don't have the privilege and the access to things that I do. And is there something that I can do to help? And started getting involved with refugees in a neighborhood that's called Vickery Meadow, hence part of the you know story of Vickery Trading Company. Um, Vickery Meadow, um, there's refugees living, 20,000 of them living five minutes from my house. Yeah. And I realized, okay, these women aren't all, I thought I was going to be working with African, mostly Christian women. And here in Vickery, it, there's 80 different languages and multiple, multiple religions and different facets of those religions. Um, and I realized, wait, there's the exact same problems right here in our backyard. It just looks a little different being here in Dallas. Um, the Lord has literally brought the nations to us. We don't have mm. to go anywhere. Mm. So I thought, what if I can do what I was going to do over there and just do it here? And that's really... And so I wasn't even really setting out to work with refugees, but that's who the Lord has placed right here in Dallas. And now that I work with them every day, it, I mean... I'm sold. I'm completely passionate. Spend every day, every night advocating for them because they're precious and, you know, need lots of love and lots of help. And I can help yep. be a little part of that. You sure can. And you're doing a great part in that. I, I want to tap on the word refugee because my daughter worked in immigration, as you know, and, um, People have uh, some misunderstandings about the words. They have a lot of confusion about what a refugee is, what an immigrant is. We hear words like undocumented, illegal, you know, those kinds of things. There's a lot of emotion wrapped around when you use the word (laughs) refugee. There's imagery that comes to our minds, misinformation. Um, So I'm guessing that you have found that to be true. And if so, what part of that are we so misinformed about here in the United States? And what have you found yourself constantly having to clarify for us? Yeah, that's a great question. I actually, um, every single time I talk to someone, it's actually something that I have learned. I just address it first, especially in Texas. Um, the, The waters have been muddied for a while now, the last five to seven, maybe 10 years. Um, Refugees have gone from a bipartisan humanitarian issue to a completely polarizing political issue, mm-hmm. and um, it, it's heartbreaking to see. So here's what here's what refugees are, because refugees are my area of expertise. Yes, there are lots of different categories of immigrants and migrants, but I work specifically with refugees. So refugees were um, defined at the Geneva Convention in 1951. Um, so this is an international... Definition. Um, definition and, you know, status of people. It's nothing that uh, a one country in and of itself can control. Um, so they are a person who are forced to flee their home because of war or persecution, and because of that danger, cannot return home. And so for refugees in the United States, if they make it to the United States, they are not illegal immigrants. They have a legal status A person, an individual cannot declare themselves a refugee. Like I said, only the UN deserves or retains that privilege. 
um, a country and an individual cannot declare themselves a refugee. Only the UN can. Um, so it is a legal status. And if they are coming into this country, especially, um, you know, yeah, we're seeing a lot at the South Texas border now, you know, or the southern U.S. border. But most immigrants or, or most refugees from around the world come by plane. So obviously you have to have permission to be here in order to get in. Right. Um, they are not asylum And that's seekers. probably a factor most people don't know because we only see the border, the, the land, right? And, and I, I don't think yep. people would, would ever imagine in their minds, oh, wait, most refugees come in by plane, which means they have to have a ticket, an ID, and all of those things to even get on a plane and get through customs. Okay, just want to clarify. Keep going. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And so so they're not asylum seekers. Again, asylum seekers, really asylum seekers technically struggle with the, the same situations as refugees, but they just have not been declared. They haven't given, been given that status yet. So, um, and they don't, until they are officially asylees and given a permanent work status, um, they are not, you know, not allowed to work, all of those kinds of things. Whereas refugees, they're allowed to work from the day they have an I-94, which is a visa on their, a special visa on their passport. They're allowed to work from the day they come in. They wait a couple weeks to get that social security card. They're good. They're done. It's all part of it. They're also not your run-of-the-mill migrants who are coming here for better education, better future for their kids, better jobs. Those are byproducts of being a refugee and a secondary benefit, absolutely. Um, But... That is not the primary reason why they come. These people don't want to leave their home. That's right. Their homes and families and and probably their, you know, a lot of nuclear families are split up in this process. And so this is not people who are trying to, you know, come in just to make more money, that kind of thing. They also, which, which I think let me, other- let me, and let me, let me emphasize that again, because I think that is another misnomer people have is that. Uh, these people are coming solely for the American dream. And what they don't understand, a lot of us Americans can't realize, is that a lot of people actually want to stay in their own homeland. In fact, most of them do. They prefer, they want to live there safely. <laughs> they want to be able to eat and have the bare necessities. They want that in their homeland. But if they had a choice, they'd stay in their homeland. You know, they oh, don't absolutely. want to leave. Absolutely, right? They don't want to leave their, their extended family, their tribe, their land, their uh, their food, their culture, their dances, their rituals. Like, they don't want to walk away from all that. And I think people think everybody's dying to get here. And what they don't understand is, no, sometimes people come because they will die if they don't. Yeah. Oh, yeah, okay. absolutely. I mean, that is the definition of a refugee. Right. Um, and then I think the other thing, you know, the American media has trained us you know, to see, you know, well, a little known fact is the majority of refugees in the world are Christian. And I think the media, U.S. media has trained us otherwise, um, you know, because they it really they'll show a refugee woman in a hijab. And then right. we have been trained to I, I feel like our American minds have been this. This may sound really politically incorrect. We have been trained as for as long as I can remember to have sympathy on the poor, starving Ethiopian or African child and hate terrorists and clothing and traditions that go with the Arabic world. And so people see a hijab and they think terrorist. And that's, that's just, that could not be further from the truth, especially with refugees. Every single person who comes into our country through the refugee resettlement system 
they go through this intense, it's like 18 months to three years vetting process. They're going through eight government agencies, um, a minimum of 20 different checks of databases and biometric checks and interviews. And it's just this rigorous, it is an airtight system. There are zero, count them, zero instances of terrorist activity in connection with an individual who has entered the United States through the refugee resettlement process. It is the most difficult way to enter any country in the world for any individual. So translation is, they're not the bad guys. Like the bad guys are not, if you're the bad guy, you're going to find a different way to come into our country. It is not going to be through refugee resettlement. So these are people who are truly running for their lives and yeah, yes, America is, it is kind of the gold standard sure. of refugee resettlement. It is where people, if you're given, you know, an option of, you know, yeah, different place. Germany and Australia are struggling with their refugee resettlement right now. So if you're given an option, yes, you want to come to the right. U.S. Um, but um, it's not something that they want. And they, but when they come to the U.S., they're like, yes, okay. I can start over. Let's make the right. best of this. Because going home is not an option. Not an option. So they start to assimilate. And we'll get to that in a minute. But I want to... Yep, yep. I hope that was helpful for our listeners because I do think there's a lot of confusion. There's a, a lot of stuff on the news about immigration, migrants, refugees. And I think we blur it all together. And I think you're exactly right. We have a lot of bias of what we see from the news. And so... Um, I want us to be more informed when we talk about these things. Um, but I, I want to shift a little bit to, like, focus a little bit on the stories of the women because, as I've mentioned, my sis- my daughter worked on the border of Mexico and Guatemala, which is a little different work than what you're doing, but she worked with migrants that were that were coming up from Central and Latin America, and many of them actually flew in from Africa and then up, right? Um, mm-hmm. But one of her jobs was to do intake, is what they call it. And basically, every person that came into the shelter, they would have to tell their story. And Madison would have to ask them all kinds of, of questions, both basically trying to find out if there have been any human rights violations. You know, has there been any rape? Has there been any violence? Has there been any extortion? And so I remember asking her after being there for a while, well, what are you seeing? And she said, oh, mom, every single person, male, female, adult, child, has had some type of human rights violation, whether it's rape or seeing someone they love beaten, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And what, but what was most fascinating to me about listening to my daughter in the many years of her work, because she's done that type of work for seven years, and is that, you know, there were these stories of deep suffering, uh, of of fear, um, uh, of, of what I probably would imagine is a lot of what people in Gaza and on the border of, of Israel in October 7th felt like that kind of fear and trembling and, you know, what it does to a human running. And so often what we do is we focus on that part. But when Madison would talk, she always also shared and marveled over the courage and resiliency that she saw she always saw such beauty and actually faith. It's interesting you say that because she would say she saw more faith 
on that border. These people who had absolutely no idea how they were going to get where they were going to go and had no resources. And she'd say, well, how are you going to do this? And they would say, God will take care of me. Um, she said, I, you know, she was raised by two pastors and raised in the church. And she said, I never saw fate like that, mom. Never saw fate like that. <laughs> She uh, almost did her master's on nor- uh, informal mothering that goes on between these, uh, bet- as, as women are coming up, right, they're bringing their children, and she w- was fascinated at the informal mothering that these women do and how they engulf each other's kids to make sure that everybody gets to the border all at once. And again, might we add, traumatizes they're going along the way. Um, these stories, when I hear them, they inspire me. I don't, I don't just focus on the suffering. I know the suffering. I know it's real. I've been exposed to that. But they, ins- these women inspire me, and they actually give me hope. And so I was wondering, I know that you have heard these stories. I know that you walk with women who have lived these stories. It is their story. Um, I would love for you to just share with uh, our listeners a story or two that has inspired you of a woman that you've worked with. Oh. Um, I think one of the most inspirational people groups on the planet is the Rohingya. Um, your listeners will have to look it up. R-O-H-I-N-G-Y-A. They are, um, the most marginalized people group in the world. They are stateless. They are denied citizenship, right to own property, right to work. In many cases, right to marry. Um, they're denied education. They have no formal education. They have no written language. Um, and they're um, just the atrocities that they have endured without betraying um, any specific right. stories. That's right. Um, every imaginable mm-hmm. and unimaginable atrocity of war, especially that can happen to women. Um, has happened to a couple of the women that have been through our program. Um, Very gruesome loss of family. Um, Very similar to what happened in Rwanda in the 90s. Mm -hmm. Um, And their um, marginalization as a people group um, by the government is um, their dictator actually patterned his... um, his process after Hitler, he thought Hitler had it going on and um, fashioned his um, isolation of this people group in that way. And um, they attempted genocide. There is a remnant of these people. And having to flee burning villages and hop onto boats and go across, you know, we see these pictures of these boats and we're like, why is Europe, you know, shutting these, you know, why are they, why is Europe letting these people in? These boats need to go back to their countries. I'm like, what are they going to do? Their village is burning. Right. They're slaughtering (laughs) people. Yeah. They're slaughtering people. And, um, and one of my ladies, um, as she thought her son was going to die on a boat and, um, she made a, a bargain with Allah and they are, they are conservative Muslim sect of people. She made a deal with Allah that said, if you let us and my son survive this trip, I will dedicate my son to your work. And um, I have met her son. She made it. Many, many years later, she made it to the U.S. Um, but to watch her dedication and to 
you know, the woman has no education. She has absolutely no education. She was separated from her husband for almost 10 years in the process of resettlement. And she all of a sudden, in ex- you know, in an extreme patriarchy scenario, has to become this single working mom who's head of the household, but she's not allowed to be. And, but she can't remarry because her husband is still alive. And to watch her fight and fight and fight for her kids and make sure they have food and get on Zoom when she doesn't know how to use Zoom and be on parent-teacher conferences and get her kids into magnet schools and, you know, to watch a mama fight for her kids is one of the most beautiful things you will ever see. Her oldest now, he's a junior in high school this year. He's starting to look at colleges and I'm like, wow. 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 To see how she made that happen. Yeah. Yeah. She, by pure, I mean, some of it is luck because the boat didn't go down, whatever, but, but sheer grit. She got it. Yes. And it is grit. And she also, she got real resourceful too. She's real scrappy. (laughs) She pulled in that she's like, I need, I need help. I need Americans, which is kind of true when you don't know the culture and don't know how to navigate it. I mean, she knows everybody. She knows how to get things done. You know, if she can't do it, she finds someone who can help her do it. And um, that has been beautiful to watch and, and to continue to watch their family. Um, it's not it's not beautiful. It's not perfect. It's not all things are not made right. It's still incredibly That's hard. Right. They still That's suffer right. with poverty every day. Um, but I'm like, wow, <laughs> when I want to complain about, you know, not having the nail polish color I want or, you know, whatever thing right, it right, is that right, day. I'm like, right. okay, Stephanie, check your perspective. Right. Let's keep this There are other things going on here. Yeah, so, yeah. So, yeah. Grit is something I think that we see in a lot of these women and tenacity for their children. And I think to myself, what's beautiful, and this is to me so Jesus-like, like they actually sacrifice everything. Their life is probably never going to be quote-unquote easy or right ever not for a first generation immigrant not for the first generation what they're doing is they're doing this yep they will they will do this for their next the next generation which then will have the next generation which will then have the next generation which will never even fully understand what that mama did and probably the father and some other arena. But right now we're talking about the women. You know, we're not negating that the men aren't doing these kinds of things too. But I wanted to talk on the women. Because, I, you know, because women are um, more marginalized in these cultures. And, and, and oh, absolutely. Um, you know, what can be done to a woman is, is on all kinds of levels. So, um, so uh, what is one thing you wish people understood about the women you minister to and with? I think that they're women. I mean, these women, their wives, their sisters, their mothers, their friends, just like us, you know, they get mad at their husbands for doing stuff just like us. It does look a little bit different because most of the women I work with work under systems of high, 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 high patriarchy. Um, but they're women. They have the, the experience of female makes us so much more alike than anything like how we dress or our faith or yes. the language we yes. speak. Yep. And that's yep. a beautiful thing when you start to realize, oh, you know, you like to 
you know, some ultimately of them we kind like of care about, about the same wedding. thing. Yeah. 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 Some of them like to talk about their, we- their wedding day. There's also arranged marriages. So that's a thing. Um, but you know, when you can find that common ground, it makes someone so much more human yeah. and brings them to a friend level. They're more an equal or a peer and not this charity case. Yeah. Uh, which so you're not looking down on someone. Yes, you can yeah. help them along, but the same way you would help a friend along. Hey, there's right. this sale right. for this really great thing that you love. I'm going to share that with you. Okay, well, let me share with you how to navigate registering for school or you know whatever it is. Sometimes it looks different, but it comes from a place of loving an equal rather than a charity case. Yeah, yeah, I love that. Um, I know that this kind of work has impacted your faith as my work internationally has impacted my faith and what I understand the Bible to say or not say. Um, I had one time when I was teaching in Dallas, a group asked me to teach, and I was in a leadership uh, meeting with them prior to going on stage, and I found out from the conversation around the table that they didn't believe that the scripture allowed women to work outside the home for a paycheck. Um, Mm. And yes, audience, this is in the 21st century in America, in a metropolitan area like Dallas. Um, these beliefs are still out there. And this was a mega church. Um, and, I, and I sat there and thought, oh, my gosh, I'm the keynote speaker. And I can't quite, you know, if this comes up, I can't quite say yes to this because I can't, you know, forsake what I think the scripture says. And on the other hand, I'm being paid by them. So authority-wise, I don't want to usurp them or, you know, blow up their world and where they come from. So I'm, I'm walking there. I'm like, oh, my God, Lord, you've got to help me figure out how to walk this balance. So we get all the way through the conference, and at the end, there's a panel discussion, and it comes up. And I'm thinking, you know how you get that red all the way up your neck and up your face? You're going, oh, my God, how am I going to do this, Jesus? You know, and I'm moderating the panel, and I'm the one that's supposed to, like, pull it all together. And anyway, so this one, thank God, this one woman stood up, and she said on the panel, and she said, well, I'm, di- I'm divorced, and I don't have a choice. I have to work outside the home. And, and everybody was kind of like, oh, oh, okay, 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 okay. You know, well, we'll make an exception for that. But it was an opening for me. The Spirit said, let's talk to them about what women get to ask this question around the world and what women don't even ask this question. Because I've never been in areas of Africa, India, Romania, where this is even on the table. Because in those environments where there's poverty, everybody works. Nobody's asking who's going out to to make a living. It has to be a consistent theology. For it to be a biblical truth, it's got to be consistent across all times and ages and People. people places and yeah, yeah 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 so that's when I realized oh you know this is not a biblical truth this is a white woman's version in western mm-hmm. you know western European descent's biblical truth it is not a universal truth and so this is so my point to this is that working with women in from different cultures has has helped me have a broader context for my faith I, I think it has um it has shifted some things for me. And so I wondered, with you working with these refugee women, how has that shaped, reordered your faith? Because you and I <laughs> went to the same seminaries. We, we, we've, you we know, we've grown up and hung out in the same, semin- in the same Christian uh, worlds, actually. And both of us had this, have, were raised with this one particular view of women. And then we work where that doesn't work. <laughs> So how has that reshaped or reordered your faith for you? 
Um, one, I am very acutely aware of my white American wealth and privilege and how that has shaped my faith. Um, I tend to rely on, as a lot of Americans do, um, we don't want, we don't want to admit it. Christians really don't want to admit it, but we tend to rely on our education and our resources to get us out of a problem. And rarely do we go to the Lord first because we know how to do this or we can pay for that. We can outsource. Um, and the problems that we deal with at Vickery Trading are so far beyond my capacity, um, on a daily basis that, that I'm forced to pray and, and pray with the women because, and that's another thing that's so cool is, um, prayer, uh, supersedes faith lines, um, in that, you know, I can my Muslim sisters, they love me praying for them. They'll take prayer because they don't, they don't have anything else that, you know, right, they need right. that hope. Um, so I think that's one. Um, but yeah, everything has become more gray to me. Sometimes I'm like, I don't know if that's just age that's making life and faith more gray because I think it does that. Um, but everything has definitely, um, become more gray in how I see it. Um, I also, so I was raised in a conservative evangelical setting church, went to a conservative evangelical seminary, um, where really the most important thing is sharing the gospel. Right. Um, you got those. And that's done in a certain way. When you say sharing the gospel, it's yes, it's it's a verbal. And, here's what you need to do, and it's the intent to convert. Let's be clear, right? Yes, yes, okay. it's verbal. And and I was raised actually Southern Baptist, um, so it is there. I mean, it's a specific prayer, and then there is a moment of time. There are, you know, I was, I walked down the aisle and had prayed that prayer, and then I was signed up to get baptized the next week because that's what you do. Right. Um, and and I get asked you know, hey, do you, do you share the gospel with the ladies you work with? You know, would I love the ladies I work with to share the faith that I do? Absolutely. Absolutely, I would love that. And sometimes we have the opportunity to have conversations about faith and eternity and those kinds of things. Um, but let's think about, but I've, what I've learned is you've got to think about Maslow's hierarchy of needs for a second. And a woman can't have a conversation about faith if she doesn't know how she's going to feed her babies tonight. That's right. She, yeah, she just can't. She's got to meet her basic needs. So we've got to step into, like, that's the gospel at that moment is helping a woman figure out how she's going to feed her kids and put a roof over her head and clothes on their backs. and, And, you know, winter is coming here um to quote game of thrones yes you can judge me for having watched it it's just fabulous um winter is coming and they they need coats and so like that's the gospel in that moment and being the you know the hands and feet of jesus she doesn't care about eternity because for a woman who has never had the privilege of knowing if she's going to be alive tomorrow she can only think about what is going to get her through today. And so that has rocked my world. Um, and it's also been a constant reminder that 
salvation and its timing is the Lord's. Like it's the work of the Holy Spirit. And which, ha, we know that, but we forget (laughs) because we want to have way more control over the process with these prayers and these systems and these steps. And we're going to, we're going to say this logical thing and you're going to come to know the Lord. And, you know, my American evangelical framework doesn't like to allow for, oh, by the way, it's actually always the work of the Holy Spirit anyway. And so I get to be a part of the process, but you know, the Lord is the one doing the work, how he sees fit. And that looks a lot different than, yeah, than what I would traditionally think it does. I mean, Jesus can, right, like lead someone to him uh, through the process of what the the normal church, evangelical church does, right? Like you grow up in Sunday school class and you, you know, you take all the how to, you know, seven healthy habits of this and how to have a better marriage and all those things. That's one of the ways in which the spirit can work. But when you start dealing with other cultures, what you find, and actually not even only other cultures, but definitely more so when you start dealing with other cultures and other religions, that lo and behold, the Holy Spirit moves and does things that like our church communities could not handle hearing about it's outside of their framework Um, yeah for example our ladies um so in middle eastern culture dreams in general are elevated to a much higher degree than they are here in america just in general christian or not just americans kind of dismiss dreams um for the most part and they hold very high they hold dreams in very high regard in the middle east um you know Statistically, if you want to put a stat on it, they say something like 98% of Muslims, if they come to know Christ, it's through a dream. Dream. Um, And I'm like, okay, well, that removes me from this equation. (laughs) You know, I'm like, the four spiritual laws isn't going to work here. But also, I mean, my ladies have told me time and time again about they dreamed about a man in white, a man in white, a man in white. And so, yeah, I'm like, whoa, that kind of rocks my world because that's not what a Southern Baptist right, kid right, does. Right, you know, right, like right. no one would believe you if you said that in the American church. And so, yeah, having this, you got to have the space for, well, God speaks to a, like we wouldn't listen to dreams in America. So he no. can't speak to us in dreams. Right, right. And the Middle Eastern people groups or Arabic people groups do. And right. so it's interesting to see, to learn how the Lord works in different ways in different cultures and realizing that, oh, wait, what? The sum of Christianity isn't the American evangelical box that we want it's to put not. it in. Right. It can, and Jesus does work there. And, and I wish yes. you guys could yes. see Stephanie right now, cause I can see her on video and you all can't, but she keeps moving her hands and they just keep <laughs> getting bigger and wider. And I'm like, yes, that's the point. When you start working with other cultures, God gets bigger. There's that, this, this containment we have for him, he blows through it. Right. Which when you, that takes some work to reframe ourselves, to reshape and reorient ourselves, especially if you've been to seminary and you've been trained a certain way, you have to do what they now call deconstructing. I call it, you know, uh, reordering our lives. But so what do you think these women have shown you about God? They haven't said it and maybe they aren't even talking about Jesus, but what have they like pointed like, like Jesus spotlight for you? Um, I think if I were to 
name one thing more than others, it is community. Um, Americans are so individualistic. And even when we talk about community in the American church, it's not the same. It's not the same at all. Um, the people groups are, it doesn't matter if they're from um, Africa, Southeast Asia, um, L- the Middle America. East. Yep. Yeah, Latin America. They are all highly, highly, highly communal mm-hmm. people groups. And to watch how they do that and love and serve each other. And and when someone um, dies, which in, in more marginalized communities or poorer communities globally death is much more frequent. They have less access to health care and, you know, and things like, so they, they are well acquainted with grief, but to watch how they love each other through that and go through it together, they know how to do it well. And once you're in, you're in, you're a part of their family and to be loved so well, you know, I have so many gifts in my house from women who would just they're showing love and saying thank you and I'm like wow if we could we have so many lessons that we could learn from Christian and non-Christian people around the world and I think that really that picture of community is really it's absolutely beautiful yeah I love it one time when I went to Rwanda I was on my way to teach there (laughs) somebody said well we should teach about community there and I was like no, no, I'm pretty sure they could teach us about community there. In fact, I, you know, I've always, I have never once, I'm, I'm going off script here, people. I have never once been a part of a small group, a, I should say a formal small group, which I want to now say I'm not against. I just think they're a marvelous counterfeit to community, to be honest with you. Because I, I had one guy say to me one time, would you be willing to be a community pastor? And I said, oh, I don't think you want me to be a community pastor, meaning get communities together in the church. I said, because what you all do is you pick your same people group and you put it in a room and you get together like every other Thursday night, no children allowed. And you go through a script of, of Bible or theology or whatever the church is doing. And I said, no offense, that's not family. That's not community. You don't even want my children there. (laughs) And he said to me, well, what are you going to do if your kids are there and somebody starts sharing how they have a porn problem? I go, well, I don't know. We can do one of two things. We can hang out and let our kids hear some of that. Or one of the people at the table, which is what's always happened in my family group, just gets up and slowly gathers the kids together and takes them into another room and hangs out with them for a bit, just naturally, you know. So um, I declined that offer. But that was a little rant. Sorry. (laughs) totally off. (laughs) Yes, they know how to do community. We need to sit at their feet and learn that. I am 100% yes with that. Um, I'm going to switch a little bit here. We're getting toward the end and I want to talk a little bit about hope Um, because this is something I've thought a lot about in the last several years. And Steve and I go through this question often, like he's in Africa right now. And I know when he gets home next week, we'll be sitting together saying, how do we process the amount of suffering, the tragedies that people are experiencing for decades, not just once, but for decades over and over and over again. And we've had to like reconstruct what is hope for us, biblical hope, you know? So I did a little study in the Old Testament and that hope is really this idea of expectantly waiting. It's an anticipation for a better future, right? And there's a tension in that because you're living in suffering with this expectant waiting and, and that something is going to change at some time. 
And what I learned is that hope has these two dynamics to it. One is there's clarity, which I love because it means you need to be real about the suffering that you're in right now. We're not trying to like Pollyanna it. We're not trying to like make it look pretty and put a nice bow on it. And I could name some Christians that do that. And I just want to choke them, right? Like, no, this is shit. And it really is shit. Let's just call it shit. You know, (laughs) this is shit. There's nothing good about this, right? So clarity, let's be honest about what's really occurring. And then a collective people has to have a social imagination where they collectively imagine a better future than the one they find themselves in. And this together is kind of the concepts you have to have for hope, at least from what I understand at this point. So I know with you doing the work you're doing, how have you wrestled with hope? And maybe more what I want to ask is, what do you want to say to our listeners about hope? Especially when we see and experience so much suffering around the globe. Just a little question. <laughs> yeah, just a, and you sent me these questions in advance, and I have like mold. This is the one that I mold over <laughs> and over and over and over. Um, and, and in some ways, I think it it, it kind of sounds like um, you know what I said about we aren't privy to the why, um, this side of heaven. Um, it kind of reminds me of that. Um, what I've learned about hope, you know, the, and it also reminds me of so much what I've learned about my American, um, white upper middle class privileged view of hope. Um, and I, I make the mistake of, you know, not that, not, I don't want to call it a mistake. You know, I often hope for no, no suffering, no disease, um, I have a kiddo who we're, we kind of have this mysterious stomach thing going on with him right now. We hope for that to go away. We're starting to realize it may be something he struggles with for his entire life. Hoping for a better house. Hoping, and, and those aren't inherently bad. Um, but then I look at my ladies and their hope is stuff that, you know, they hope for things that I was born into. You know, mm-hmm. their greatest hope in life is to be able to, you know, move into a house and have a place to call their own. Well, I've lived in a house that was owned and not rented from the day I was born. Um, and so to, to realize one, that our hopes can be tempered, which tells me something that, you know, that that's where that universal truth comes in is we may be placing our hope in the wrong things. Um, and and we're we tend to place our hope in in temporal things, realizing that you know hope or that it it's believing in something um, that is yet to come that will come, and I think that that may be heaven in a lot of ways. It's right. not something that's going to be um, achieved in this lifetime. Um, yes, we can hope for things th- to get better. That doesn't mean we stop pursuing, uh, you know, I'm not going to stop pursuing trying to figure out what is wrong with my son, you know, right. because he may struggle with it um, or stop doing the work of these women, you know, helping these women because they may never reach six figures. That's not what that means. But realizing true hope um, is the restoration of all things, which does not happen in this lifetime. 
it does not happen this side of heaven. And, you know, I can, when I look at my ladies, I I do struggle with that because, um, because I want so badly for them to have a better life and an easier life and all of these things and realizing the reality. Yeah, they may not. I mean, they may struggle. We try our hardest in, you know, our program, you know, all brag, it's, it's effective for the women who, you know, fully (laughs) participate. It is really effective at getting them, you know, helping pull them out of poverty. Um, But first generation immigrants, it's really hard and it may not happen. Um, but that's not ultimately where our hope is. And that's what we've got to keep looking at is even in the midst of suffering, you know, am I still going to have hope? Am I still going to have joy? Am I still going to keep looking forward when my current circumstances don't change or don't change as much as I wanted them to or thought they were going to? Well, you know what made me think when you said that is that actually even the women you're dealing with first, um, first, uh, first generation immigrants, they have a future hope also, because they're pretty sure these things that they're having they have little hopes, right? Like they want to get a yeah. little head, but they're not. They have clarity. They understand this is going to be very hard for them until their death, and their future hope is in the generation, the next generation, and the generation after that. It's a future that's coming. It's not something they will probably fully behold at that time, you know? I think with Americans, particularly those of us who have been privileged, right, like our hope we think is like here in the now, and there are some of that, but some of it is future. Like I think about the Israelites. They had to have hope for for 400 years they lived under slavery, 400 that's a long time to expectantly wait. But what I do probably, and this is where I probably want to close in a minute, but I do think, though, in the middle of the midst of 400 years of living in hell, there were glimmers of hope along the way. Glimmers Absolutely. of hope like Vickery Trading Company that, that literally helps people get up a leg up in the middle of the decades and decades and decades and decades and decades of suffering these people have had. So even in the midst of long, long term suffering, we have glimpses of Jesus working and and breathing little ounces of hope into us. So I think your work, I mean, this is why I've been following you around the, the work you're doing. I just think it's marvelous. I love what you're doing. And I want you to tell our listeners how they can support your work. Cause I know you just did a fundraiser And I went and looked at it this morning and I thought, oh, how can we help with that? So tell us how we can help you. Tell us how much money you need from us, Stephanie. (laughs) Yeah, we had hope, you know, (laughs) it was not the most financially successful fundraiser. I'll just put that out there. It was incredibly impactful. We took people through you know, a month, it simulated a month in the life of a refugee and really got people thinking. Um, we were hoping to raise 30000 that night. We raised about four. Wow. <laughs> so we're a little bit, we're a little bit short on the funding for that. Um, so it was definitely not what we hoped, but really, um, yeah, so 30000 if they want to yeah. give to that, where do they go? Really, vickerytrading.org, our okay, website. And I will be posting that with the podcast, and you will also be seeing it on the Facebook page, ladies, that are involved in that private group. So just know that you can go and do that. We need to help Stephanie and her women get to another level in this support. So I'm going to besiege and ask you to do that on my behalf and hers and all of these women. 
Um, so I want to end with this idea of, uh, yes, there is a lot of suffering. People go through a lot of trauma. And yesterday I was thinking about, you know, sometimes I sit around and I, I actually noodle and ponder with Jesus about the many things that are happening, particularly to women and girls, but beyond that. And my mind has been deeply on what's happening in Israel and Gaza. It's also on what's happening to women in Afghanistan. I think we've forgotten. And if you do any research or Googling on what's happening to women, it's getting awful there for women. Um, your work tells us what's happening to women. You know, I could look at what's happening in Sudan right now, not South Sudan where Steve is, which is the most broken country in the world. And Sudan, people in Sudan are at war and they're literally fleeing to South Sudan, which should say something. <laughs> <laughs> if they're going that's to your South better Sudan, option. that's the better option. And then my husband, you know, last month was in Congo where they've gone back into kind of civil war stuff and a million people are in refugee camps again and women and children. And so sometimes I can just get so overwhelmed with the amount of suffering and pain and anguish. And so Steve yesterday sent me this picture and this is kind of what I want to leave uh, all of us with is that he sent me this picture of this gorgeous sunset over the, the the fields of Africa with just a little bit of spray of a tree in the picture and it was stunning you know it's one of those things that take your breath away and I thought I really needed to see that beauty and and I was mindful of something Valerie Carr who wrote a, a book called See No Stranger and she's done advocacy work for like 30 years she said that um if you're going to give your life to advocacy work or give your life to these very hard things in life, these overwhelming dark places, you're going to have to look for the beauty too. Because no matter what's happening out there in the world right now, no matter how dark or violent or cruel, this beautiful thing also exists. And so she says this quote, and here's what I want to leave us with, and it's this. When we see something that is beautiful, we call it breathtaking but we really should call it breath-giving because when suffering constricts the heart, awe stretches it back out, making us more compassionate, loving, and present. So to those of you who are listening, yes, lots of suffering, but look for the resilience, look for the bravery, look for the beauty. Stop scrolling long enough to look for the beauty so that your heart and my heart can stretch out again. Thanks for listening. Thank you, Stephanie, for being with us today. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Hey, if you've enjoyed this conversation, then hop on over to themarcellaproject.com and sign up for our email or check out some of our other resources. You can also find me on the Marcella Project Facebook page or on every other platform of social media as Jackie Reese, R-O-E-S-E. Have a great day. Thank you.